0: Hi, I'm Amy Keene, and this is The New Bazaar. Coming up on today's show.
1: Great question. Yeah, thanks for this question.
0: This is a great question.
1: Thanks for that excellent question. Yeah, I really did not prepare for this question.
0: Cardiff and I answer your questions. Hi, everyone. As I said at the top, I'm Amy Keene. I'm the executive producer of The New Bazaar. I'm also Cardiff's business partner in our company, Bazaar Audio. And while I am taking the host reins this episode, I assure you he's right here with me. Hi, Cardiff. How are hey, you? Amy, you
1: can keep the host reins, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to do such a great job. Uh, I've always been a little curious to see what the guest chair felt like. So, How's it going so far? <laughs> yeah, it's not bad. It's comfy. It's cozy.
0: Good. Are you ready for our <laughs> summer mailbag episode? I can't wait. You might remember we last answered audience questions around Christmas, New Year's. So now as we get ready to wrap up season one of the podcast, if you can believe it, we're (sighs) going to tackle a whole new series of questions. Yeah, can't wait. We've got questions about the economy, about this podcast itself, uh, about our company and even a couple of rather personal questions that our listeners have submitted.
1: Yeah, thankfully the personal questions were more for you than for me. (laughs) I'm actually quite happy about that.
0: Yeah, I'm just going to have to reveal all kinds of things. Anyways, lots of fun stuff. So why don't we just get into it? Yeah. All right, our first question comes from a listener named Carl. Let's listen to it. Hi, New Bizarre Team. Carl here from Atlanta. I'm fresh out of college and just starting to get involved in financial markets. Although I certainly got interested several years ago through Planet Money and the Indicator, it seems that there is a new interest in markets among my age group. Is there any way we can tell how much more interested people are in the market compared to previous years? I'd imagine this would show up via something like an increase in trading volume, but that doesn't look solely at individuals. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Thanks for putting out insightful economic pieces, especially when you showcase the human side to the data. Keep up the good work!
1: Carl, thanks for that excellent question, and shout out to Planet Money and The Indicator, my former professional homes. Unfortunately, there's not like just one single, carefully calculated, all-encompassing indicator that's called investor interest, that then goes up and down, and which we can track, and we can look at and then say, hey, this is how interested people are in financial markets right now. But there are a few other things that we can track. One is just straightforward surveys that ask people if they are investing in the stock market or in other markets. These surveys are not always super precise, take them with a grain of salt, but they do help show which direction things are moving in. So like one recent survey from Gallup showed that 58% of adults own stocks, and that number has been going up since the year 2016, back when it was just 52%. So that's one thing you can do. I think more helpful is just keeping track of the behavior of what are known as retail investors. So these are individual investors, regular folks. These are not big institutions or super rich people. And there's a bunch of ways to keep track of interest in the markets from retail investors. And all of these informal measures do point to a big increase in participation in the markets starting a couple of years ago, 2020. And there are some early signs also, by the way, that some people who invest are now getting a little bit more cautious and they're stepping away from markets just because of how much equity markets and bond markets and crypto and pretty much most risky assets have gone down a lot in the last few months and, and, in fact, in the first half of this year. So what are the ways to follow interest in the markets? Here are some of them. One simple way is that you can look at how often the shares of individual stocks are being bought and sold, and then you can compare it against how often the shares of just passive index funds are being traded. And I think Carl, in fact, mentioned that you can look at things like trading volumes, and, and he's right, and that's a that's a good place to start. There's also ways of keeping track of retail investors by looking at activity in the options market. And if you don't know how to do that, don't worry. Just get yourself a Bloomberg.com subscription or a subscription to the Wall Street Journal or whatever. There's articles in the Those places that are constantly looking at the options market to find and track activity by retail investors. Uh, next, you know, financial institutions will often conduct their own surveys to look at trends. So, one interesting finding that I just came across: Schwab recently did a survey that concluded that 15% of all investors in the U.S. stock market started investing as recently as 2020, which is, I think, a big number. Not a number that, again, you should take too literally, but the fact that it's even plausible that it's that high does suggest a big recent increase a couple of years ago. Uh, And then finally, of course, you can keep track of how many people are buying and selling in online brokerage accounts. So these became super popular also a couple of years ago, in 2020 especially. Robinhood, for example, I think is the most famous of these online brokers. And lately, it has actually been losing active users. It had 10% fewer users as of March, for example, this year than it did in March of last year. So anyways, we also have a lot of links related to this question that we'll put in the show notes. So do check those out. And thanks again for the question.
0: Quick follow-up for you, Cardiff. For any of our listeners who consider themselves in this early stage of investing, just getting into it maybe over the last couple of years – What would you recommend that they read or listen to regularly? That's a great question.
1: And I think if you can afford it and it's not cheap, my favorite economic analyst is someone we have on the show quite often. His name is Matt Klein. He writes the Overshoot newsletter. So check that out. If you can't afford it, and I totally understand, okay there is a lot of good options that you can find for free online. So just start looking around like the financial blogs, right? Read Josh Brown at the Reformed Broker that is not behind a paywall or anything. And he's fantastic. Read some of his colleagues like Michael Batnick. They do fantastic work on financial markets. Strongly recommend them. And if you just go to some of their articles, you'll find a lot of great links that you can click around uh, to find, you know, some really great commentary there. Uh, But the best thing you can probably do is to just follow every single day either the wall street journal or the financial times or bloomberg.com or one of the places one of the daily news places that does a good job of keeping up with the news and just start familiarizing yourself with the language that would be my recommendation
0: it's a good advice good place to start all right let's get to our next question this one is from bosco hi there this is bosco calling from spain I'm just listening to your episode with Matt Klein doing a great review of uh, pre-COVID, post-COVID. And first question, right off the bat, the most important one is, did the economy grow? Literally, is it bigger? So I was wondering, why not ask, is it better? Why this thing with growth? And I know there's this whole big thing going on with that, growth, degrowth. please. Why is it always bigger and not simply better? Do we really need to grow, 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 grow? I would really like to know your take on that. Also, Cardiff Garcia, your Spanish pronunciation is great. And since I live in Spain, I'm really curious to know what your Spanish heritage is.
1: Can you give us a little bit about that? Love your show. Keep doing the great work. You guys are awesome. Bye-bye. Hey, Vasco, ¿qué tal? Thanks for that question. Uh, To take these in reverse order, my family's Cuban. My parents were born in Cuba, and I grew up in a multi-generational Spanish-speaking home with my mother, my grandparents, and even for a time when I was really young, two great grandparents, and Spanish was actually my first language. I've managed to retain just enough of that Spanish to make a bunch of Spanish-speaking friends in adulthood and to keep them, but I do lose practice from time to time. On the question of why GDP growth is so important, let me separate this into a couple of different points. First, it is true that GDP is an imperfect measure of the economy. In our episode with Diane Coyle, we partly got into why that is, and she is just fantastic on this topic. by her book, uh, GDP, A Brief But Affectionate History, if you haven't read it. It's fantastic. GDP should be combined with other statistics to better understand the economy. But even on its own, I got to say, it's not bad. It's not useless. So we do track it, and we also track other things like unemployment and wages and inflation and all kinds of other measures. But the second point, why do we care about economic growth in the first place? This is one of the most important questions in all of economics. And we can actually go all the way back to our very first episode of The New Bazaar when we featured economist Peter Blair Henry on the show. And Peter is a scholar of how poor countries can get richer. And he makes the point, and he made the point on that show, that there has never in the history of the world been a country that has sustainably improved the situation for its poorest citizens without robust economic growth, which does not mean that economic growth is enough. That is not what I'm saying. You still need policies and institutions and other things to make sure that the benefits of economic growth end up being accessible to the whole population and not just to the politically connected or to rich people or to people who own a lot of assets already. But without economic growth, you cannot have any of the good things in life, like elevating people out of poverty or improving the health of people throughout society or having a growing middle class or varied and interesting jobs and careers to choose from. Those things are all impossible if you don't have economic growth, positive, strong economic growth. And here I want to offer a recommendation. It's a book that... I actually would love to revisit on The New Bazaar someday. So if you don't want to read it, maybe you can actually just wait for our podcast on it when we get to it. But anyways, that book is called The Moral Consequences of Economic Growth. And it's by Benjamin Friedman, an economist. It came out back in the mid 2000s. So I think it's due for a reconsideration. Uh, And the book argues that not only what I just said is true, that economic growth makes people richer and healthier, but also that it makes society more stable. That when you have fast economic growth, there's less of a chance of a populist backlash, for example, or of a political coup d'etat or a bloody revolution, uh, or even that it can make people, you know, think a little bit less in a zero-sum way of what can I get from someone else? And they think more in a positive sum way of how to grow the pie for everybody. So that thesis is, of course, contentious. It's debatable. But I think you can look back on the last couple of decades since it was published, when certainly in the U.S. and throughout Europe, you had quite slow and unimpressive economic growth, both before and after that terrible financial crisis of 2008. And there have been populist backlashes. So Look, I get it. You know, saying that we constantly need fast economic growth can just sound kind of exhausting. Like we're all hamsters on a treadmill. We're all constantly locked in a competition. It has these connotations of greed or consumerism or late capitalism or something like that. But the good news is our understanding of how economies can grow and keep growing is better than it used to be. And it should be even better in the future. And in any case... Uh, fast economic growth is something that I think we should all want and that we should be working towards and not something to resist or lament. Or at the very least, nobody has ever come up with anything better. I really believe that.
0: It's a solid answer. Can I ask, this This one usually comes up in the context of climate change, does yeah, it? Yeah,
1: sometimes, yeah.
0: Is there a way to think about separating reducing emissions with all of the merits of focusing on GDP growth
1: absolutely you can look at the richest countries in the world and they're the ones where emissions are going down okay and so I think you can have growth as a participant in doing something about climate change you can have technological innovations and it doesn't replace the need for politics right you still need political policies to try to get people to start moving away from fossil fuels and putting in place policies that do drive the kind of technological innovation, you know, that can lead to a solution to climate change. But I don't think that finding a solution to climate change is antithetical to continued fast economic growth. In fact, I think there are ways to make those two two things sort of work in concert.
0: Mm -hmm. That's a really important point to make. All right. Next up is listener Shaleen with, I think, what might be the hardest-hitting question of this episode.
1: Hello. I'm Shaleen Modi from Huntsville, Alabama, also known as Rocket City, USA. And I have a just an honest question to get to know each of you a, just a bit more and in the spirit of some levity. So for each of you, what is your third favorite dinosaur? That is all. Keep up the great work. Thank you so much. Best wishes. This is a great question. This is like, you know, something you'd get in an in interview from a company that asks you like those questions that are just aimed at trying to figure out how you think
0: rather than actually caring about the answer. Was this the question that you had to do the most research for? Because I think it might have been the question I had to do the most research for. (laughs) Uh, Let me put it this way. Uh, I did have to do
1: some research for it because I didn't have favorite dinosaurs before this question. I don't know enough about dinosaurs. So I basically just decided that I wanted to support an underdog here. (laughs) I like it. an An under dino? Yeah. Okay. Undersaurus? Um, anyways, I googled ugliest dinosaurs and I found a top 10 list that looked like it was written by somebody who knew what they were talking about. And I basically just adopted that list as my new list of favorite dinosaurs. That's great. Okay. So coming in third place on that list since Shalyn asked us for the third favorite dinosaur was a dinosaur called the Hippodraco or Hippodraco. Okay. I'm sure I'm pronouncing it correctly. Okay. And according to the description, the Hippodraco stands for horse dragon. But actually, here's what it looks like, quote, a small, unattractive head, a bloated trunk, and a run-of-the-mill tail, unquote, (laughs) which also is what I look like when I'm not exercising enough or something. So there you go. There's my third favorite dinosaur. A
0: hippodraco. Yeah, that's right. Okay. I had to do some research myself because I don't think I've looked up dinosaurs since I was like in the third grade you know i knew about the raptor because i hail from the city that has the toronto raptors oh, the velociraptor yeah, of course Natu- it's a natural fit for you but that's probably my first favorite right dinosaur so cross that off the list so that's not then number 2 you know we'll just have to wait till someone asks that question number 3 is something that i believe is pronounced the ankylosaurus it's like a part lizard part giant armadillo it just looks like this thing with armor all over its body um, Sounds like
1: an injury that you'd get on the basketball court too. So long as
0: we're yeah, I think it is a kind of like game. a type of arthritis. <laughs> yeah, Ankylosaurus. What Anyways, what was interesting to me about this is that I think the Triceratops gets a lot of love for being the last non-bird, non-avian dinosaur. Oh, um, it turns out the Ankylosaurus was right there with it to the end, but no archaeologists have completed a skeleton. Or they've not been able to unearth a full skeleton to date, so it's just very rare. Oh, that so is a rare kind of interesting. dinosaur that yeah. a, apparently was there to the end. Ankylosaurus. Yeah. Rock (laughs) But perhaps we can get back to the modern age now. Our next question comes from a listener named Jessa. So, uh, Cardiff, she wrote in asking for advice on how to handle an exit interview from a job. And this one came in after we had Stacey Vanek-Smith on the show discussing her book Machiavelli for Women all about strategies for negotiating all manners of scenarios at work. So let me just read you Jess's email. Okay. She says, Hi, Amy and Cardiff. I love everything you're doing with The New Bazaar. I especially love listening to Cardiff double down on lying to HR. <laughs> this is just a fan favorite. Everyone seems to love it. I got
1: in a lot of trouble for that one. We got a lot of a lot of mail saying uh, they disagreed with me on it, so I won't revisit that, but yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Anyways, yeah, continue.
0: But here we go. She says, I recently quit a job where I suspected HR had lied to me. Your episodes made me think about how to respond to an exit interview they gave me. I didn't give away much in the exit interview where the HR lady asked very direct questions about compensation at the new job I had accepted elsewhere. But she was very solicitous of feedback about how they could better retain good employees. And they sent me home with a hard copy of a survey asking questions. So, she says, I would covet your opinion on how much information you would give them. Thanks, Jessa.
1: You know, whether to actually give useful feedback at an exit interview is a really interesting question, and it's not just... Whether to give useful feedback, it's whether to do the exit interview in the first place. You're leaving, what's in it for you, and so on. A lot of times that decision, I think, can get caught up in the understandable emotions of leaving a job, especially if the circumstances were just not that great. Like if you're leaving a job that you hated or you felt like you were pressured out. Or maybe if the colleagues that you're leaving behind are angry at you for leaving or your former manager or whatever – That's not always a great frame of mind to give feedback in. And so you might end up saying stuff that you regret later. And, like, frankly, it's just hard to know because you're on your way out if anyone at your old workplace actually cares about that feedback or if they just want you to go through the motions of the exit interview because that's the protocol. Or even if they want to hear your reasons for leaving so that they can then say, aha, this is why – Jessa said she was leaving, and these are clearly nonsensical reasons, and so they end up just rationalizing your exit in ways that aren't necessarily true. So here's my recommendation, and it's based on absolutely no research. Okay, It's just something I came up with, and this is not based in science or anything like that. Uh, you know, we're not advice people, right? We just happen to be answering readers' questions and this was yours. So my recommendation is that if the business you're leaving asks you for honest feedback, tell them that you'll be happy to give it to them in three months. Because if they really care about your feedback and if like you really care about giving them feedback, then it shouldn't matter any less three months from now than it does right now, right? So if it happens, by the way, great. They get in touch with you. Go ahead and give them the feedback, okay? They clearly do care. And if you still care to give it to them, then go for it. But in all likelihood, by that point, I think they probably will have just moved on. And ideally, you will have moved on too. And you'll realize that the stuff that bothered you so much when you were working at that place every single day when the atmosphere of the workplace was all around you – just won't matter anymore now that you've been working at a new place and you'll have the perspective that only a bit of time can bring.
0: Yeah, that seems like good advice just to take a minute no matter what. Uh,
1: Have you ever had an exit interview? Yeah. A good one? Yeah. I've had some useless
0: ones (laughs) and some ones
1: where I wondered if they ended up using it, but I never bothered enough to find out. And frankly, I I came away thinking it was just a waste of time for everybody.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Let's get to our next question, which in the spirit of summer and wedding season, I just can't wait to hear what you think about it. (laughs) Hey, it's Amelia from London. This one's for Cardiff. It's about wedding economics. I came across a report from a credit reporting agency, Experian, which said the average cost to attend a wedding was £567, which is almost $700, and that a third of people were declining the invite or doing mad things like staying up all night to avoid accommodation cost. Anyway, reminded me of speaking to Cardiff once about him going on a wedding strike after a particularly expensive season of weddings. Personally, I've only ever regretted not attending a wedding that I was invited to, partly because it was in a far-flung place, Australia, and I made a future vow to try and get to them wherever they were. So I guess I decided there was an emotional benefit to take into account. But Cardiff, is there an economic case for declining a wedding invitation? First off, we should probably let our listeners in on this one shouldn't we?
1: Yeah, of course. Amelia yeah. is a former colleague of ours and a very dear, very dear very dear friend of ours. Yeah, we um, love Amelia.
0: In fact, you know, she's the reason we got to work together at the FT in the first place.
1: Yeah, and there's some history that's important here too, you know, when I made this comment about going on a wedding strike to Amelia, it was during a time in my life when I was attending a lot of weddings. Yeah. I was a little bit younger and You know, I was a journalist and a lot of my friends were, frankly, in more lucrative professions. And so they were having all of these incredibly lavish, really fun weddings in places all throughout the world. And I got to say, I loved going to them. I don't regret going to them. But I was always broke. I was always using my vacation days on these weddings. And some of them were, like, super worth it. You know, one of my friends got married in Beirut wow. and we took a big trip, you know, to go see the, not just the wedding, but then I I went to Syria and saw some other amazing wow. things afterwards and it was incredible. But there were just a lot of them and it was really expensive and I couldn't afford it and I just find the entire wedding industrial complex to be a huge scam. Yeah. There's so much unnecessary excess in it. And it imposes massive burdens, especially on the people who attend a lot of them and who end up not getting married themselves, like me, for example. Yeah, right?
0: not getting to have all those people show up and, and spend their money well, on you and your the, day. The other thing, and this is when I when I go on the rant, is that a lot
1: of times you're just flying to a distant place to go to somebody's wedding essentially to say goodbye <laughs> because the trajectory of your friendship afterwards ends up being – radically divergent, right? Like, you know, your friends who get married might leave the city that you all used to live in together. Mm-hmm. They might have kids, start a family, and quite understandably, that's where, you know, their attention is focused for the next 18 to 25 years of their lives. And so, anyways, it's a massive cost. I don't think it has to be that way, and I wish that it were just a little bit easier. This isn't like the days when somebody would have a wedding because everybody was getting married at age 22 and mm-hmm. they needed all the wedding gifts you know, so that they could put it in their starter home and so on. The world is a little different now. And so, yeah, I was, I was bitter about it all. And what I told Amelia was that if I could go back in time to when I was like 22, it might have been a good idea then to have just said that I'm never going to anybody's wedding and just issued a blanket statement. Because the problem is that once you go to one or two of your friend's weddings, then it's like if you turn down future weddings it's like you're making a judgment on where your friends are in the hierarchy of your friendships or whatever yeah that you value some friends more than others so anyways my rant is mostly about the cost of attending weddings exactly the gifts and if you're a groomsman and I've been a groomsman in a whole bunch of people's weddings you know you have to get the tux I think it's worse for the ladies hotel rooms and so on yeah you know on and on Mm -hmm. down the list there's all kinds of things involved and I wish we put a little bit less emotional weight on attending these Mm. events, which I think should be more about the couple, the people getting married than it is about, you know, the trappings, the surroundings, Mm -hmm. the people who attend and all that. It's just too expensive. And yeah, so I protest a little bit, (laughs) you know, but happily, like I'm less bitter about it now because I'm older and fewer of my friends are getting married now. And I will admit, that, like, it wouldn't be a bad thing if some friends of mine got married. Now, I wouldn't mind occasionally attending one of these weddings. But when I was younger, it was super hard. It was super expensive.
0: Yeah. I got married in the pandemic, so nobody could come. Right. Perfect. But actually, one of my, like, favorite (laughs) things, because we couldn't have friends or, like, that many friends, we had a couple of friends there, my favorite thing was actually just reading the cards of all the people who couldn't make it, who wrote these, like, really beautiful cards to just express how they felt about Osahan, my husband, and I, getting married. And I thought, oh, actually... A really lovely thing and in, in lieu of having been there that is beautiful. It's just the sentiment
1: and by the way my favorite idea and i forget where it came from i forget who came up with it was that instead of inviting people to your wedding you could send them a note that says that if they pay you money you won't invite them to your wedding so that there's no obligation to attend so right. in lieu of attending the wedding and giving a wedding gift just send in the cash and And then they won't feel obligated because they won't be invited. I love that.
0: And then it could be like 200 instead of 700.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there finally, you go.
0: before we move on, um, for anybody listening now who's trying to figure out how they're going to get through this next few years or even just the next season of weddings, do you have any advice on how to make this decision?
1: Yeah. Send it Send it to us at hello at bizarreaudio.com. Oh, we'll you're, forward asking, it you're asking to the audience. I was, I
0: was asking you if you had any advice, but uh, oh. you're talking about the listeners.
1: No, I'm talking about the listeners. I never figured it out. I actually went ahead and went to all those yeah, weddings. Yeah, so did I.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so did I. All right, the next two questions come from the same listener. Her name is Jennifer. And first up, she wants to ask about the fallout from one of the U.S. government programs, fiscal programs responding to COVID. Let's take a listen. Hi, this is Jennifer Higgins from Illinois. With COVID, my position was terminated and my severance package was paid through the PPP loan. And I'm wondering how... The PPP loan affected severance packages or how much of uh, the PPP loan was used to el- eliminate positions and pay out severance packages. So Jennifer's asking about PPP, which stands for the Paycheck Protection Program. That was a big program rolled out at the beginning of the pandemic.
1: Yeah. So I think we we should probably cover a little bit of background on PPP because it matters for answering this question. So yeah, these PPP loans were part of the CARES Act. That was the bipartisan bill that was passed in early 2020 to fight the COVID recession. And so what were the PPP loans? Well, I'm going to simplify a little bit here, but the idea was that the government would lend businesses money to help keep paying their workers, so essentially so that these businesses would not lay people off while the pandemic was happening. And so long as these businesses did use that money on payroll, those loans would end up being forgiven. So if you kept your staff in place, you wouldn't have to pay back the money. And the goal of the PPP loans was to kind of preserve that relationship between businesses and their workers so that when the pandemic was over the transition of getting these businesses back up and running would be a lot smoother because those businesses then would not have to like go out and find a whole new workforce and retrain new workers and so on. And also those laid off workers would not all then be scrambling to find new jobs. This all made sense at the time. We didn't know that the COVID pandemic would last so long or that it would have different waves and just generally persist the way it has. So here's where we get to Jen's question. Technically, the PPP loan money was supposed to be spent on payroll, but severance technically qualifies as payroll. But also businesses could not get those loans forgiven unless they kept their workers on staff. And so the more people that a business laid off, the less of those loans the business could have forgiven. Okay, so it would have to pay back some of those loans. Which means, of course, that it is quite possible that some of that money went towards severance, but also that paying severance would make it harder to have the loans forgiven. And so I tried to find some specific numbers on this, uh, on severance specifically. I could not find them. But if you want to know more about the PPP loans generally and how they were used... There is a report from the Government Accountability Office that was published about a year ago that noted just how quickly the program was put in place, which is understandable. Things were moving fast, but which also made it really hard to monitor how effective the program actually was. That report also estimated things like how much potential fraud ended up being associated with the program because if businesses presented themselves falsely to get those loans or to have those loans forgiven, then that could be a problem. So the report just did all kinds of things to try to track how the money was used. And I would note that that report did not mention severance in it. So I suspect there is no way to know just how much money from the program was spent on severance. I looked everywhere. But if another listener has an answer to this, uh, please let us know and we'll forward your response to Jennifer. And in the meantime, we'll also post a link to that GAO report and a bunch of other stuff in the show notes for this episode.
0: Perfect. Yeah. Lots of additional reading for all of you. who want to like really dive into the substance of all these answers. And in fact,
1: to read all that extra stuff we're going to link to, go to our website and not just to the show notes that are in like your app app where you listen to your podcast because there's so much extra reading that actually wouldn't fit in the constraints given by those apps. So go to the website, BizarreAudio.com, find the new Bizarre, and that's where you'll find all that extra stuff.
0: Jennifer had another question for us, Cardiff, and this one is a really interesting one, starting to look at some of the economic implications of the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. So let's take a listen. My other question is, since the overturning of Roe v. Wade, I've looked into getting a hysterectomy, and my partner has looked into getting a vasectomy, and I'm just curious how insurance companies will be affected by the overturning of Roe v. Wade.
1: Great question, Jennifer, and there's a mandatory caveat here. I want to be absolutely abundantly clear. Please do not base even some tiny part of any major life decision, medical or otherwise, on what you hear on a podcast, especially this podcast. I have no idea what I'm talking about most of the time. Okay. Right. I mean, I (laughs) just, I know. Fine, fine. But like, just don't do it. And I'm not even saying that like Jennifer specifically was about to do that. I just want to make that point to everyone who listens to this podcast. Do your own proper comprehensive research. So the question Insurance and the overturning of Roe v. Wade. So this issue partly turns on whether companies uh, as part of the health insurance plans they offer to their workers can provide abortion related benefits to their workers who are based in states where abortion will now be illegal. So covering things like travel costs to another state or an abortion itself. A number of companies have come forward, especially some big companies have come forward to say that they do plan to offer these benefits to their workers. uh, But the legality of all this is still being worked out. It's just unclear. And I'll just quote something from a piece in Axios, which we'll also link to in the show notes. Axios has done a really good job of covering this. And they write, quote, self-funded health plans, which most large companies have, are regulated by the federal law known as ERISA which preempts state laws that regulate benefits. But businesses that offer coverage through the purchase of insurance, so these are typically smaller employers, still are subject to state insurance laws and rules according to the Society for Human Resource Management. So it might be harder to offer these benefits for smaller companies, uh, and there could be some privacy implications as well. And in a New York Times newsletter on the topic, the author of that newsletter, Peter Coy, writes that, quote, it's not clear how the ERISA preemption applies to state laws regulating abortion, unquote. So it's not really settled for big companies either. And frankly, I am just not qualified to answer more detailed questions on this, especially given that all All this is in so much flux right now. So instead, again, we are going to provide a bunch of links in the show notes on our website that I found very helpful and that go through these topics carefully in case listeners want to continue pursuing it.
0: Hmm. And staying on this subject of the economic implications of the Supreme Court decision, we got another question from a listener named Christina. She sent it in via email and she was just asking if we were going to do or if we would do a full episode on the economics of abortion or rather the ex- economics of access to abortions. I remember actually we talked about this over the weekend after that decision came yeah. in and – You noted a piece that you'd read in the Wall Street Journal that I thought actually sort of put this in really great context. Maybe we can just start there with where does the research stand today?
1: Yeah, thanks for this question, Christina. And again, similar to the last question, as Amy just noted, we have come across a lot of really good research and reading on this topic recently. So rather than do a whole episode, we think it's maybe better to just point people in that direction. Amy just mentioned a really great place to start. It was a short essay in the Wall Street Journal, and the title of that essay is The Controversial Economics of Abortion Law, which makes the point that the existing economic research on abortion is about to get a lot more scrutiny Now that Roe v. Wade has actually been overturned, more scrutiny maybe than that research had gotten in the past, There is one study in particular that I've seen referenced quite a bit lately, and it looked at the economic outcomes for women who got an abortion just before the gestational limit for the age of the fetus. And then that study compared those outcomes with the outcomes for women who arrived just too late and were turned away and could not get an abortion. So it created this kind of natural experiment where you have these two sets of women who are largely the same in terms of their socioeconomic backgrounds, except one group did have abortion access and one did not. What the study found was that the economic outcomes for the women who got the abortions were just much better. So these women were less likely to be in poverty, less likely to get evicted, more likely to be employed and so on. And that finding just generally lines up with the consensus of the economic research, which is that access to abortion has positive economic effects for women and especially for low income women. I also want to rush to note here, though, that I am just talking about economic effects because this happens to be an economics podcast. The abortion debate is obviously about so much more than just economics. There are moral and legal and political arguments. Uh, Economics can maybe inform those other dimensions, but it does not replace them. And so just wanted to make that abundantly clear. Amy and I have our own views on this topic, but we're here trying to explain the economic angle. So. Anyways, I also suspect that quite a lot of new economic research will be done about abortion in the coming months and years now that things have changed so much. And so, meanwhile, do check out the show notes at our website. We actually have a lot of links in response to Christina's question. And I also want to thank Christina for that question.
0: Yeah. And as you say, Cardiff, you know, in the coming months and and certainly years, there's just bound to be much more on the subject. We're about to learn a lot more about this issue. Yeah. Yeah. All right, uh, on to our next question from Sky, sent in a voice memo.
1: Hello, this is Sky. I'm originally from Canada, but I've been living in Taipei, Taiwan, teaching English for the last five years. And I just have a quick question for Amy. I'm wondering what led her to be a fellow Canadian working and living abroad. And I'm wondering if there might be any economic reasons why she ended up in the U.S., such as better work opportunities in her field. All right, thank you very much. Amy, I'm sure you had a lot of time to think about this question over 4th of July weekend. <laughs> That's right. Well, um, Launching fireworks
0: and at the barbecue, waving that American flag. You know, <laughs> the thing about 4th of July weekend is that it starts with Canada Day, oh, okay. which is July 1st. All right. <laughs> I totally people, knew a that. A lot of people don't know that. <laughs> July 1st, the beginning or the It's just called Canada Day? Canada Day. Okay. Yeah, celebrates uh, the Dominion of Canada. Okay, July 1st, 1867. All right. Anyways, yes, I did have a lot of time to think about this. And the answer, Sky, first of all, just thank you for the question. But the answer is yes, indeed. There are economic reasons. And then those economic reasons soon transitioned into just much bigger, all-encompassing life reasons. Personal
1: reasons. Personal
0: yeah. reasons, you could call them. But to... Uh, Make a long story quicker. Ten years ago, I was working in television in Toronto, but I really, really wanted to be a journalist. For those of you who might not know, in Canada, you basically, even in the early days of the Internet, you have access to everything, almost all the media that's in the U.S. And then, of course, this sort of section of Canadian-made media you're also consuming. So I was very aware of sort of what, what could be, but actually... In the Canadian market, it was relatively tiny, a couple of newspapers, a couple of TV stations. And I just felt like with my undergrad degree, I just didn't have the skill set to actually get one of the few jobs at a Canadian-based outlet. So I thought, well, maybe I can go to school in the U.S. One of the amazing things about being a foreign student in America is that you're eligible for a one-year work visa. It's called OPT or the Optional Practical Training Visa. So that was the visa I got after going to school was the visa that I used to get my first job at the FT and work with Cardiff. And as they say, the rest of that is history. But going to school, I did a a master's program in journalism, a one-year program. um, At Northwestern. At Northwestern. prestigious school. (laughs) In a sense, yes. But on that first day of school, I also happened to meet the man who would later become my husband, Osahan, who i mentioned earlier, he's American. And we both came to New York for work after school. And so we're here together in New York, largely for economic reasons, because both of us have had a lot lot of opportunities for work to be here, but we've also made our life here.
1: I like how you mentioned that they have the internet up in that frozen arctic tundra that you come from <laughs> of canada
0: what i was referring to is in if you go way back to the da- days oh, days of dial great. up you yeah, know yeah, i yeah. could still watch like katie kirk on the today show or read you know whatever blog right i think if you're in the us you don't always realize like just how far american culture and Ameri- american media spreads but growing up in canada it very much felt like it was ours it just was you know there was a little bit of a barrier in between mm-hmm. we couldn't get those jobs but we could consume that was produced from American media outlets.
1: All right. Well, Um, happy immigrant story then.
0: (laughs) Yes. Yeah. All right. Let's move on. We're getting close to the end here. Um, Let's move on to our next question. This is from Ruben, who writes with two specific questions. The first, he says, when is the series about the Negro baseball leagues coming out? Maybe I'll just answer this first one and then we'll get to yes. the second question. So first of all, Ruben, thank you. What Ruben is referring to is a project that we said we were working on very in the very early days of forming this business, Bizarre Audio. And it's about Negro Leagues Baseball. It's going to be an audio series. And Ruben, to give you the update, we've been developing the show and right now we're in the process of looking for the right production and financing partner. And we hope, if all goes to plan, that we will be able to publish this later this year.
1: Yeah. should note that Amy's done a lot of great reporting on this show, and it's really come together nicely, and it's a mix of a personal story because Amy's grandfather played in the Negro Leagues and also a lot of fascinating findings about... The business and economic side of the Negro League. So we're actually really excited about getting this done. And it really is coming together now. It is. It's actually happening. It is. We can really say (laughs) that. We're very excited.
0: Ruben's next question is, are you going to do an episode on the failings of liberal economic policies following the interviews about conservative academia and neoliberals? We've had this question a few times.
1: Yeah, so... On this question, I think in this case Rubin is using the word liberal to mean left wing or left of center because he contrasts it with our episodes on conservative economics and our episode on neoliberals. Not liberal as in classic liberalism, yes. the much older version of this word where it meant things like tolerance and you know freedom of expression, the rule of law and things like that. When people refer to the liberal world order, I think... What Ruben's talking about here is left of center, left-ish yeah. in the American sense of the word liberal. So I just want to make that clear. And so those two episodes that he mentions, uh, the one with Carl Smith about conservative economics and the other with Jeremiah Johnson about neoliberalism. Those episodes were all about shifting definitions. So, for example, the populist conservative backlash of the last six or seven years has made it hard to know what conservative economics actually stands for. Right now, what it means. Neoliberalism, the word itself used to mean something totally different than what modern self-identifying neoliberals mean by it. And so there were questions about those concepts that I just found fascinating, you know, ideas of how to define These terms and how to stop people from talking past each other because they're all using different definitions of the words instead of talking about their disagreements on actual ideas or actual policies. But I am going to be honest, I don't really have similar definitional questions about left wing economic ideas, which doesn't mean that those ideas are unimportant at all. Um, I just don't have that same kind of fascination or even confusion about what the sort of left-of-center economic agenda is right now. But that might change. At some point, I might. And when that happens, uh, we'll find a good guest for an episode. And I'll keep looking. I promise you that. But as of right now, no particular plans. But thanks for your question.
0: Yeah. Thank you, Ruben. Are you ready for our last question? Let's do it. This one's really going to turn the spotlight on our company, on Bizarre Audio. It's on from- us. On us.
1: You know what it is? It's like blasting a spotlight at a mirror. (laughs) That makes me want to close my eyes. (laughs) Hello. My name is Guillermo Sanchez. I'm from Monterrey, Mexico, and I'm a very big fan of your show. So, my question is this Is this podcast profitable? I think the reason why I'm asking this is because The New Bazaar has become one of my most favorite podcasts. I listen to it every week. And I'm very concerned that if this isn't profitable or worth your while, you're going to cancel it. And I want to continue to listen to it. So can you give us some perspective as to what the future holds for this podcast? Thank you. Bye. Yeah, we're concerned
0: too, Guillermo. Thanks. (laughs) Right to the heart. Right to the heart of it all.
1: Great question. And first of all, Guillermo, that that is super kind. I want to break this question into two separate questions as well. So is the new bazaar profitable? And then the question of, will it continue? Because those are actually not perfectly correlated questions. So first off, is it profitable? Uh, No, not even close, (laughs) at least for now. Uh, Amy and I have been making the show very much as a money losing labor of love this past year. And when I say money losing, I actually mean losing our own money. We bootstrap this business so we don't have any investors. So why is it not profitable? Well, the business model for independent podcasts is not an easy one. It's mainly a function of how many listeners you have rather than like the intensity of how much your existing listeners are enjoying the show. So for instance, in a given month, Our podcast has almost 40,000 individual listeners, which just means that almost 40,000 people downloaded at least one of our episodes each month. And for an hour-long conversational podcast about economics, that is fantastic. That's great. We are super proud of that. And we're especially proud given how much great feedback we get from our listeners. But in terms of podcast economics... That's more like the audience of like an underground kind of cultish indie rock band that hasn't yet hit the big time. Yeah, the new bazaar. That's who you're going to see this weekend. (laughs) Exactly. It's not quite big enough for a podcast to be profitable just from the advertisements or the sponsorships that it sells. But there's good news here, too. So, first, of all the time that we've spent working on the show, it's all gone towards producing it and experimenting with things and just making it the best show that we can – and not towards selling it. We've actually spent $0 on marketing the show or advertising it in any other place. And right now, ahead of season two, we're actually looking for possible financing partners that might be able to help us with that. So not just with a production budget, but to help plug the show into other podcast networks so that more people can hear about it uh, in the first place and find out about it. And by the way, if you're out there and you want to be said financing partner, get in touch. Tell us that you're interested. Exactly. Exactly. There is another perspective to consider here. You know, Amy and I do a lot of different things as the founders of Bazaar Audio, our business. We don't just do the new Bazaar. We have clients, so journalistic organizations hire us to consult for their shows and sometimes to host their shows and help produce them. We have a couple of corporate clients as well. And in fact, one of those clients actually hired us because they had heard the new Bazaar and liked it. So making this A great podcast also can help us land business elsewhere and helps us justify spending money on it.
0: It's like our storefront.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's a, that's actually a great way to put it. Um, I've left out a bunch of stuff here, but that's the basic story. And occasionally we'll get a question asking how people can support us to help keep us going. And we've also been asked if we're thinking about starting a Patreon or something where we raise money directly. We're not really yet sure if that's something we're going to do or want to do. So for now, if you do like the show and you want it to continue, then literally the best thing you can do is just to spread the word. Tell your friends to subscribe, leave those ratings and reviews. We say that at the end of every episode. It sounds like a cliche, because I guess it is, but it really is. It really does. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's what makes the difference, and we appreciate it. And so now, Guillermo, you have the background, and that also explains, by the way, why we're taking a little bit of a break between the end of season one in August and restarting season two a little bit later. It's because we actually do need to spend some time on those other projects that do pay us basically (laughs) they like help us you know pay our rent and feed ourselves and so forth but we are looking forward to continuing the show and getting going again at the end of season one and restarting with season two sometime later in the fall or early winter of this year
0: yeah this question reminded me of some of the questions we had early on just between the two of us about what we were trying to build and Mm -hmm. some of the motivating principles and there were a few shows that we just really wanted to make and we thought well Let's find a way to make them. It might not mean that those shows are instantly or immediately profitable or money generating anything. But we wanted to – the sort of – the business challenge that we set before us was how do we go make those shows that we think are worthwhile, are meaningful, and that we're in a good position to make?
1: We wanted to make a show that we were really proud of and we're not – we've never been in a rush to make this like the one thing we do that's super profitable that's like a big hit and i remember when we were talking about for instance our production values we were like you know a lot of economics podcasts have fabulous production values but for the most part a lot of them compromise on production and on the sound and we hired a fantastic composer and we were happy to spend the money on that we pay money to do a lot of our recordings in studios and to get our guests to studios instead of just having them record it into their iPhone or whatever. And we wanted that to matter a lot. And we're now coming up on our 50th episode. Our last episode of season one will be our 50th, which we just thought was like a really strong number. It represents almost a full year of production. And we have made that show. And now we just have to find a way uh, to keep making it. Exactly. Exactly.
0: That brings me to a question that we didn't prepare for.
1: Mm. But it might
0: sound familiar based on how you tend to end your interviews. Okay. So Cardiff coming up on 50 episodes of The New Bazaar. What's one thing that surprised you making <laughs> oh, these shows? Man.
1: <sighs> yeah, I really did not prepare for this question. I think it's it's just that you and I have done this together before. Mm-hmm. We've done this separately before as well. Yeah. You've hosted a show at the FT, and you ran a team there. You know, I left the FT after you and I worked together, and I went to NPR, and I hosted a show there. So you and I have done podcasting before. And I sort of had this vision in my head before we started that a lot of things would just go way more smoothly because you and I were in total control. And a lot of the things that I think were hard about doing podcasting inside of organizations. When you and I had control, they actually did go mm-hmm. more smoothly. We could make decisions way faster about what we were going to do. I have to say I was a little surprised to learn how much other work we had to do that had to, you know, that, that was related to the podcast, you know? Yeah. And to starting a business because that was something we hadn't done before, but it was necessary to be able to do the podcast. So for example, we have to hire a lawyer to oversee like our contracts whenever we end up partnering with someone, you know, or, or whenever we have clients, or when we hire somebody as a freelancer. Yeah. You and I had never hired a lawyer before, so we had to like figure out what that meant. Yeah. and we had to find, for example, some of the other people that would provide the sort of missing things that you and I could not do. So we had to find a great sound engineer, and we did. Yeah, you know, shout we out to did. Andrew Lilly. Yeah. Okay, we also had to find like somebody who would do a great job with the music and we found you know dj harrison and scott lane at subfloor studio which by
0: the way was a year ago this week that we had that music commissioned
1: excellent see so like doing all these extra things i was surprised by how much work it was and i was not surprised that all of that extra work was nevertheless like still super worth it to make the show yeah yeah Yeah. How about you? I haven't... Oh. Oh, you thought you were going to escape? You're going to put me on the spot
0: and not answer the question, too? Isn't that the host's prerogative? (laughs) Um, You know, a lot of people talk about what it means to start a business. And I think a lot of times about our work with Bizarre Audio as like running a small business, less so like some startup that's trying to scale quickly, you know? Like we've got this sort of small shop that we're really trying to take care of and make sustainable, but we don't have investors that are looking for us to grow every quarter, for example. And still, whether it's this sort of like fast growing startup or, or another kind of small business, a lot of people talk about how thinking about the business and the work to do for the business doesn't stop. And I thought I understood what that meant, but the way it, it just sort of permeates into all things, I think that that just was surprising. And I wouldn't I wouldn't change any of it. Like, I think it's, it's all been worth it. But it, that has been surprising to just sort of realize that on a Saturday afternoon, there's actually a tremendous amount of work to do.
1: <laughs> good answer. Yeah, that was a good answer. And uh, yeah, in terms of, you know, surprising you back, uh, as they say, you can take the host out of the host chair. But... Yeah, you know, that's not going to work. But
0: you can't take the host out of the chair, it seems. <laughs> but no, wait, no, you can't, right. Uh, sh- I think we should uh, just bring it home. But you um, can't
1: take the host chair out of the host.
0: <laughs> it just doesn't work. I think the moral of this story is that the host probably could use with some coffee. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the moral of the story is tell your friends. Yes, exactly, exactly. Leave a rating, leave a review. Exactly. But as Cardiff has said throughout this episode, we have so many links for so many of those answers. And please go to our website, BizarreAudio.com, click on the episode page, and you will see everything there. It can be some nice summer weekend reading if you'd like. Also, there were a lot of questions that we didn't get to. Yes. And so one of the things we're going to try to do is to just answer more reader questions on the blog. That's BizarreAudio.com slash blog. But I think for now, that's our show for the week.
1: Yeah. Awesome.
0: Super fun. Great it, job. This was fun. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. I hope I'll be let back. If not, I'll be on the other side of the glass Anytime. next time. Anytime. Just for good measure, The New Bazaar is a production of Bazaar audio from me and host extraordinaire, Carter Garcia. <laughs> Adrian Lilly is our sound engineer, and our music is by Scott Lane and DJ Harrison of Subfloor Studio. Please follow or subscribe to The New Bazaar on your app of choice. And if you enjoyed today's show or any of the shows this season, leave a review or tell a friend. If you want to get in touch with Cardiff, he's on Twitter at Cardiff Garcia. I am there as well, far less prolific, but I'm at Amy P. Keene. Or you can just email us at hello at bizarraudio.com. And we'll see you with Cardiff back in the host chair next week.